This morning we're going to continue our series of messages that we've been walking through on the letters that were written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. We're just calling this series Letters from Jesus. You know, like every generation that's gone before us, we are just trying to figure out what it looks like to be the people of Jesus. I'm, here's the thing I know. A, a lot of things have changed over the years. We live in a different world than the one in which our grandparents lived, don't we? Uh, language has changed, hasn't it? I mean, uh, just in uh, going back, I mean, how many of you have used the word jeepers? <laughs> you know, nobody uses words like, well, okay, Haley did. <laughs> so a couple of us do, but but language has changed. Uh, that, that Technologies have changed. I mean, good, my goodness, technologies have changed massively over the last uh, uh, 50 years or so even. Dress has changed, has it not? Everything has changed. Many, many changes have occurred. Many, many more changes are occurring even today. And even in the church, we do things differently now than we've done them in the past. And I'm not even just talking about in your lifetime. I'm talking about over the centuries, uh, the, things have changed. And, and the way we, I want to say this, the way we do it now, it's not better. It's just our 40 years. It's just our time. It's just our turn. Uh, it's not better at all. Jesus is worshipped very well with a piano and an organ and a choir. And he's worshipped very well with a guitar and a saxophone. And he's worshipped even very well with two, two turntables and a microphone. You know, he's worshipped well with anything. It's just not better. It's just our turn. It's our 40 years. This is our time. And, and, and through all of that, the gospel has not changed. We were, we're going to read from a text today that has been read from for nearly 2,000 years. So the gospel has not changed. But the way the church carries out her mission has always been evolving. It has always been reforming, always changing, always meeting the culture where they are. Uh, that's why, you know, I have a friend who, uh, when we were in Idaho, did cowboy church. I'm here to tell you, cowboy church has done very, very differently than biker church, Ernie. <laughs> I guarantee that because you meet the culture where they are, but the message and the gospel never changes. And, and so uh, uh, things change. The, the, the way the church does the, her work, it changes. You know, 300 years ago, they weren't worshiping with a piano and, piano and organ or guitar. And 300 years before that, it was something different. 300 years before that, it was something different. But now is just our 40 years. This is our time. And, and we want to learn what it looks like to be the people of Jesus today in our context, in our culture, in our world. So, so the idea of this whole series was that if we look at some other churches that are trying to do what we're trying to be, they're, uh, that they're trying to be the people of Jesus, what if we examine some other churches who have tried this before? Some who did well, some who struggled in other areas. What if we looked at the, those churches and see what we can learn. So we started looking at these churches in Revelation, and we've been covering them one every week. But today what we're going to do, we're actually going to combine two of them, Sardis and Philadelphia. We're going to look at those two churches. I'm here to tell you, most of the time we're going to be on Sardis. Sardis is our biggest fear come true. Sardis is what we're so afraid of here and what we pray so hard against here coming true. And not only is it important because uh, it became what we want to avoid, but it's also important because in Sardis, we find the message of Jesus. And, you know, and you talk about the message of Jesus in a lot of ways in modern times, the message of Jesus has 
has been lost in a fray of moralism. And what I mean by that is that people want to connect Jesus and Christianity to just, you know, one simple moral aspect. They want to boil down the gospel into a moral act or moral acts. And, and so what ends up happening is that Jesus becomes aligned with a political party or aligned with a stance on social, uh, uh, social issues. And, and that's very, very dangerous. In fact, can I just tell you this? This may shock you, but anytime the word Christian becomes an adjective instead of a noun, you begin to live in dangerously gray areas. Do you hear what I'm saying? Let me just say it like this. And, and you're going to be shocked when I say this, but I'll explain it. I think you'll, you'll agree with me. There is no such thing as Christian music. Because music can't be Christian. Only people can be Christian. Christian is not an adjective. Christian is a noun. There's no, there's no such thing as a Christian muffler shop. Now, there might be a muffler shop that's owned by a Christian, but mufflers cannot receive Jesus. So there are no Christian mufflers, right? Are you following me? And when you begin to play the game, and that's what Jesus becomes, you begin to dance in some very dangerous and foolish areas. I mean, you talk about music and you say, well, we should only listen to Christian music. Well, first of all, as I said, there's no such thing. But then what do you do with soundtracks? What do you do with instrumental music? You know, I mean, I like I like a lot of movie soundtracks. I actually listen to movie movie soundtracks from time to time. I, I, they're just really good music. But but you know, I mean, does that mean that I'm lost and Jesus doesn't love me because it's not Christian? See, when Christian becomes an adjective, the whole point of the gospel gets missed altogether because it's all about trying to describe something else instead of being a person. Does that, does that make sense to anybody? So we're going to look at Sardis. And in this, we're going to see as we look at where they missed and how they failed, we're also going to see the message of the gospel in this letter to Sardis. So let's go. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is what, what Jesus uh, said to the apostle John as he wrote it down. He said to the angel, and again, remember the angel is messenger so this to the pastor of the church to the angel of the church in sardis write these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of god and the seven stars i know your deeds listen to this you have a reputation of being alive but you are dead you have a reputation of being alive but you are dead this is our greatest fear come true this is those who wear the name of Jesus, who wave the banner of the cross, but inside they're dead. In essence, they have learned to play the game, but the Holy Spirit of God is not, is nowhere inside of them. That, what's happened in Sardis is that they have conformed to a pattern of religion, but they have not been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. You following me, following me here? Because there is a huge difference between being conformed to a moral pattern of behavior and actually being engaged with the living Christ and having that relationship with him. Sardis has become our greatest fear, a, a, a very well put together, very pretty place. And Jesus says, although you look the part, although you look great, you're dead. You're dead. And it's, it's you know, it's really easy to get sucked into playing the game rather than engaging the living God. Listen, if you've grown up in church, how many of you have 
How many of you have grown up in church or have, have a church background in your, in your life? Let me see your hand. Yeah, a lot of us here. A lot of us here. Well, if that's the case, then you know how easy it is to get sucked into this and how easy it is to learn how to just play the game rather than actually engage the living God. Surely you know. Surely you know how quickly we can get sucked into doing everything that we know is right but there's no soul behind it. There's no life behind it. There's no energy. There's no joy in, in the middle of it. There's no life in it any longer. Surely you know the pain of trying to keep your list, the pain of checking everything off of your list, and then you get that list all done, but your soul is, is, is still just shriveled up and dry, and you feel like you're in a wasteland. But, but when we find that place, then we, we still don't want to give up the language. We Still don't want to give up, give up our place in the group. And so we, we don't want to give up pretending that we're okay. And pretending that we love Jesus very much and pretending that everything is going well. We don't want to give that up, that appearance, so we pretend. And in Sardis, they've learned to pretend because they're doing everything that looks good. But Jesus said, you're dead. They've learned to pretend, and their pretending has caused their souls to dry up. They've dried up to the point where Jesus says, although you have the reputation of being alive, I'm afraid your souls have become dead. Jesus said in, in verse 1, as we just said, you have the reputa a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And, and, and listen, he's not talking about physical death there. They're alive physically, but he's talking about your soul. And this is the message of Jesus. Jesus invites us into real, deep living. But, but, there is, but outside of that, there is still a way to live outside of him that boils down to mere existence. And it's not really life. This is the, the Jesus invitation when he says in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Translation in, in my translation, this is what it says, in the fullness, in me, the fullness of life is found. Outside of me, mere existence is known. And this is the constant, consistent message of Jesus throughout the Gospels. Now, now let me tell you why it is so important. It's important because somewhere along the way, Jesus uh, has been hijacked, so to speak, by those who would teach and speak as if, the primary purpose of God in the universe is judgment. Now listen, judgment is real. We just talked about it in our Bible study on Wednesday night that, that the judgment of God is a real thing, but that is not his goal. That is not what he wants. In fact, Ezekiel tells us that God takes no delight in the death of, of the ungodly. So that's not the purpose, but those who speak as if God delights in judgment uh, instead of displaying the glorious grace of Christ through forgiveness and salvation. So so follow me. I want to show you that this life thing is Jesus's message. So Matthew chapter seven, starting in verse 13. And in this verse, Jesus tells us there, there are two paths in life. And one, one path leads to life and the other path leads to destruction. Matthew seven thirteen. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, many enter through it. So the broad path 
leads to destruction. And I wanted to find destruction there because a lot of us, we, we, we think of it wrongly. I think, you know, don't, don't think fire falling from heaven and incinerating you on the side rock, you know, leaving a little shadow of who you used to be on the side rock there. Uh, picture in your mind more like this, a, a fresh cut apple thrown out into the hot summer sun and over a period of hours or maybe a period of days, it begins to shrivel and shrink and eventually goes to nothing. Broad is the way of your soul being shriveled up and becoming dry and cold. So, so don't think that destruction is some kind of massive judgment of physical destruction on your life. Destruction is more like the soul shriveling up and losing the ability to breathe. So let's keep reading verse 14. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So the broad path leads to destruction, but Jesus's path leads to life. And, and the invitation from Jesus here in this text that we just read from Revelation, he says, I have the keys. I have the key to life. So let, let's go. Let, let's get out of the shallow water. Let's get into the deep end of the pool. Let's go. I hold life, real deep life. I own it. I created it. I know how to get there. So follow me. The message of Jesus is not and has never been shame on you. The message of Jesus is, won't you come to life? Won't you come to life? So you, so you have this thing that Jesus has thrown out. He says, come to life. Narrow is the path, but I have deep, meaningful, real life. And you can do that, have that, or you can go the other way and have your soul shriveled up. He's saying, come to life. I'm the author of life. I will lead you into rich, full life. The best possible life is with me. And I, and I believe, and we don't, we don't say this enough, and, and it makes us sound foolish because we, 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 we put this dichotomy and we think that people that are outside the church are, you know, somehow just can't have any joy or any fun in life. But I believe in, in, uh, that, that you can have a good marriage and not be saved. I, I do. I, I know people, and you probably do too, that are not saved who love each other very much. So, some unsaved married couples actually go on on date night can you believe that you know I, I mean and he doesn't he doesn't beat her or anything it's just amazing you can have a good marriage and not know jesus but here's what i think jesus is trying to teach us you if you don't know him if you don't walk that narrow path you can have a good marriage but you will never have what marriage in its fullness was intended to be outside of him You'll never have that. You don't have to be saved. And if you have kids, you can cover their ears. You don't have to be saved to have good sex. But the Hebrew word dod is a word that describes that. It literally means the mingling of two souls. That's something that, that happens only when you, when you are walking that narrow path. That will never be known outside of Christ. You'll never know the kind of intimacy that is available to you, the spiritual intimacy outside of Christ. So there's a deep, deeper part of life. There's a, a depth of life that you cannot know outside of Jesus. You can be wealthy and not, and not know Jesus. But soul wealth, as we talked about a few weeks ago, will never be found outside of Jesus. You know, every tree is going to bear either good fruit or bad fruit. And according to the Bible, the good fruit are the things like love and joy. Of course, you know, I think we misunderstand joy. Uh, joy is not like spirit sprinkle that says that everything's going to be all right, even though you're losing 83 to 6. 
You know, I mean, how many of you, I don't know if you ever played sports in high school or anything, but if, but if you ever been in that game where you just got drummed really badly and, and you're just getting destroyed and the cheerleaders are still there at the sidelines and they're, and they're still yelling, go team, defense, defense. And you're like losing 83 to six or whatever. And you, you know, you're out there on the field. You're like, please just leave us alone. You know, please, we're getting killed here. Just stop it, please. This is embarrassing. But Jesus is not saying, or excuse me, joy is not saying, uh, isn't this great in the middle of pain? Joy is a deep confidence in the goodness of God in our life's darkest hour. That's what joy is. But love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of living the way of Jesus. The life that he, that he offers us, that he wants for us. You can have life the way God intended it to be in the deep end of the pool. Or you can go the other route and have a, lot, a way of living that shrivels your soul. And Jesus teaches with great repetition about the choice that we have before us. That there are two ways to go. Two choices that we have. Look at verse 24 of Matthew chapter 7. that We, just, we were just in that. In that chapter, let's look at another place because he repeats this over and over again. This is what he wrote. And you'll know this story. We're not reading the whole story, but this is a parable Jesus told. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on, a, on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Which, two couple side notes here. First of all, that rock is hearing and being obedient to the word of God. That's what he's talking about, the rock there. But here's, here's the other things I want you to see. First of all, to be called wise, the man decided to build his house on the rock. That was why he was wise, because he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna build my house, I'm gonna build my life this way. But secondly, and just as important, we don't, we don't see this often, we don't think about this, but we need to understand that building his house on the rock did not exempt the wise man from the storm. It did not mean the storm would not come. It, it, the building on the rock does not exempt you from the storm. It just gives you the strength to be able to weather the storm. So uh, w we can build on the rock or verse 26. Let's keep going. Jesus said, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. So you can hear them. It's not just hearing the word, but it's living him. It's putting him into practice. It's living the way of Jesus. He says, if you even, if you hear the, this, this word that I'm teaching and you don't do it, you reject it, you don't live it out, this is what happens. He, he said, that person is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew. Exactly what happened to the wise man and beat against that house. But what happened? And it fell with a great crash. So once again, Jesus invites us into life, real life, deep life. You, you can build on the rock and by building on the rock or building on his word, building on Jesus, then when the storm comes and it always comes, then the house will stand. Or you can choose to live a different way. And if you choose to live a different way, then all you will have to help you deal with sorrow is intellect and intellect will always fail you when sorrow becomes too great. This is the message of Jesus. Come to life. Come to good fruit. Come build your house on the rock. Come to life. This is the message. 
Well, here's what I believe. Sardis forgot the message of Jesus. And listen, I, I get it. I, I know how they can forget. If, if we're really living the way of Jesus, then, then there should be people who are intrigued by our lives. And so they, they, they want to check out this thing because they see us living and it's just so weird to them. They look at you living the way of Jesus and say, man, that is not like anybody else I know. That is so unusual in the world, the world in which we live. And they say, I want to know what makes them so different. The, 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 the church that's being the church is always at its furthest boundaries, always going to have some immaturity and it's always going to be messy. You're always going to have immature Christians in the church if you're being the church. Now, now, now that circle of people shouldn't be staying there. And, and as believers move into maturity, more people who don't know Jesus should become more and more intrigued by him. When you, when you have immature believers, there, there are always going to be people who are upset. That, this is what happens. I've seen this in so many churches where you have somebody comes, they get saved and they're, you know, they're, they're not the finished product yet. And they're still growing and they're making mistakes and they're saying stupid things. They're doing stupid things, but they're still growing. And I've seen people who've been in the church for years who have forgotten that that's who they used to be. And they get all upset at them because, because they, they're not being the way that, that they thought think they should be. And they get upset because the new people don't look like or act like them. And here's the thing. I just want to confess to you if I can. I sometimes feel the pressure to want to appease. Can I, can I confess that to you? And I don't think I'm alone with that. But sometimes dealing with stuff just makes me tired. You know what I'm saying? And so sometimes instead of dealing with something, what my flesh wants to do is just say, all right, just do whatever makes them happy. I don't want to deal with it. Anybody ever been there? So I understand how over a period of time, a church can begin to shift resources away from being the church that God calls them to be and shift those resources into comforting themselves. I understand how easily the weight of the church can fold in on leadership. So I understand what happened in Sardis. I don't think that this was a men, a group of men who, who were like, hey, let's just pervert the gospel. Let's just drive this place in the ground. Let's kill the spirit in this place. That's, I don't think that's what happened at all. I think they forgot that the message of Jesus is not look like me, but the message of Jesus was come to life. Here, here's why I think they forgot. Revelation chapter 3, verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. So Jesus says, Sardis, you've forgotten. Remember what you received. He says, wake up. Is this the dream? Is this what, what we started out for? Is this what we have longed for? What we wanted to be when we started following Jesus? Wake up and strengthen that which remains. And, it, and, and I think we hear that and we, we say, okay, yeah, you know, I need to wake up myself. I've, I've been getting a little lackadaisical. I've been getting a little lazy in my walk. I need to wake up. I need to strengthen what remains. But what we do when we do that often is we ask the wrong question. Now, we've talked about this in a previous message, but here's what I believe. I do not believe that the question for you and me as believers in Christ need to ask. The question is not, is this thing right or wrong? 
We like to do that because we like black and white. We like to draw the line and say, I want to do what's right. I, don't, I want to avoid what's wrong. But I think in doing that, sometimes we limit our growth because there are things in our lives that are not wrong, but still hinder our walk with the Lord. So if it's just simply, is it right or wrong, we're, we're going to reach a point, point where we will plateau in our walk with the Lord, we'll, we'll stop moving forward, and we won't be able to strengthen the, what remains. Instead, I believe that this is the question we should ask. Does this stir my affections for Jesus, or does it rob me of my love for Him? Does this thing that I'm doing... See, a lot of times if something that robs us of our joy... We like to justify it because we'll say, well, the Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with it. This is not a sin. I'm going to keep doing it. And when we keep doing it, what we're doing is we're robbing ourselves of our affection for Christ. So the question is, do, does this thing, does this activity, does this person, does it stir my affections for Jesus or does it rob me of my love for him? I wonder what life would be like with, with, with Christ if instead of trying to manage the flesh by asking if something is right or wrong, we instead would ask the question, does this stir my affection for Jesus or does it rob me of my affections for, for Him? Because we, we can end up being managers of fleshly appetites with our little checklist that defines what is good and defines what is bad. And we say, no, this is sin, this is not. And so I'm only going to avoid the, that thing. But the problem with the checklist is that it is powerless to change us. Here's my example. This, anybody know what this is? Very good, very good. It's a piece of paper. Some of you are like, we're in church, so I'm going to guess Jesus. Uh, you know, we always guess Jesus first. No, this is just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper. That's all it is. All right, now, now I'm going to do this. Now what is it? It's still a piece of paper, isn't it? It is. You know, what if I got it wet? What would it be then? It would be wet paper. That's all it is. If I, if I lit it on fire, what would it be? It would be burnt paper, or just ashes of paper. It's still paper. And here's the thing. If you just try to manage the flesh, which is exhausting, by the way, instead of being transformed by the Spirit of God, if you, what happens is you just keep reconfiguring the same junk over and over again. And so you wad it up and you say, well, it's not that thing anymore, but it really is. Or you put it in this part of your life and say, well, and now it's all wet, so it, it's not the same thing anymore but it really is and we and we end up just reconfiguring the same things that we've always done we keep just shuffling the same things around in our life and nothing ever really changes because we haven't dealt with what's there and so you end up reconfiguring the same junk and you address symptoms without ever solving the problem what if instead of asking is it right or wrong we, we woke up and paid attention to our soul and, and ask ourselves, how is, does this affect my walk with Jesus? And we ask the right question. Does this stir my affection for Jesus? Or does it steal from me my desire to know Him? Let, let, me, let me give you an example. If you walked into my office right now, you're, you're going to find a bunch of books all over the place. There are going to be books stacked up on my desk. There are going to be books stacked up on the floor behind my desk. There's going to be books on the book bookshelves. There are books all over the place. And, and I'm, you know, right now I'm probably in the middle of 
you know, three to five different books at any given time. That's just how I am. I just, I'll get through part of way through one and I think, oh, this one really looks good. And I'll start that one too. And, and, and for whatever reason, the way that God has wired me, for whatever reason, the written word stirs my affection for Jesus. There's something about the, some writers particularly that when I read what they have written, it's just lights something inside of me. It stirs me up and it just makes me love Jesus all the more. I have friends, however, who are very, very different. You know, they're always playing their guitar. They're always singing worship songs. And, and why is that? Because that stirs their affection for Christ. But it would not be fair and it would not be right for me to go up to them and say, hey, here are your 10 books. If you love Jesus, you'll be in the middle of five of them by this afternoon. And in the, in, in the same way, it would be horrific to ever put a guitar in my hands. It would be painful for you. It would be painful for me. In fact, I believe God himself might go, eh, you know, why don't we read instead, Dave? Why don't we do that? This is here's a journal. Let's shut that whole thing down there. I think that's what he would say. What if instead of trying to manage my flesh, I woke up and strengthened that which remained by pursuing with all my heart the things that stir my affections for Jesus and fleeing from the things that rob me? Can I give it some examples of things that might rob you that are not necessarily sinful? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start meddling, okay? You ready? Uh, Facebook. Television shows. Sports. None of those are sinful. Well, some television shows might be, I don't know. But you know what? Those things can eat up my time. They can, they can, I mean, have you ever been that place where you just can't wait to see that next episode of that TV show? And it's, it's, it's got your, your, it's got your affection. And if it's taken me away from Christ, even if there's nothing wrong with the show, I need to be honest enough with myself to where I look at it and say, you know what? This thing is not taking me where I want to be. Now, if I, if I keep going down the path, my heart will grow, will, will grow cold. My heart will get hard. And what will happen is eventually I will know that this thing is robbing me of my affection for Christ. I will know that it's not feeding my walk with Christ, that it's not taking me where I want to be, but my heart gets hard enough to where I just don't care. Because I want what I want. Wake up. That's what Jesus says. Pay attention to your own soul. And I know, listen, that is wildly unpopular because we like to crank up the noise and ignore that voice inside of us as much as possible. What if we really did pay attention? Wake up. Look deep. Does this stir me toward Christ? Is it robbing me of my love for Jesus? Pay attention. In, in fact, Hebrews chapter 12, you can read it. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to lay aside every sin. We get that. That's the right or wrong part. But he said, and the weight that so easily entangles us. Seems as if the writer of Hebrews is dividing it into two things that we need to get rid of to be able to run our race well. And that is, we need to make sure that we are not dabbling in sin, that we put aside the sin, but also 
anything else that entangles us and makes it harder for us to run the race that Christ has set out for us. Pay attention. But then there's the call to remember. He said, remember. Remember what? Well, that leads us to Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia PA, but Philadelphia AS, Asia. <laughs> Let's go to verse 7. Revelation 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, when he talks about here saying uh, that, that, that these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, what he's talking about in that passage there is that that is a direct reference to a man named Eliakim. Many of you don't know the name of Eliakim, but he's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where speaking of Eliakim, God says, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So Eliakim had the key to all the treasures of the king. And when he opened the door, it was open. And when he closed the door, it was closed. And Jesus says here that he has the key of David and that when we pursue him, he will open the door up to the riches of life in God. And the open door is Christ's invitation into life and depth and purpose and beauty. It is that this invitation of Christ into life. Jesus said, I have opened the door. You, you didn't open the door. This is not something you were able to accomplish. I opened the door and I opened it so that no one can shut it. Why is that? Why, do, why does he say that? It's because he says, you have little power. You have little power. This is going to be the key to save us from becoming Sardis. How many of you uh, have ever sat on the sand at the shore of the ocean and just listened to the ocean roar? Anybody ever done that? Yeah, some of you have. It's just nothing like the, that sound. But when you sit there and you look out across the, the ocean and you, you, you can only see a, a short distance, but you know how big it is, how massive it is. Pretty soon, if you start thinking about that, you start feeling small. You just do. And it's that moment you realize, you, you sort of wake up in that moment and realize that you're not at the top of the food chain like you thought you were. That, that, that if the ocean really wants to eat you, it will because it's so much bigger than you and, and, and there ain't nothing you can do about it. Or, or what about that moment you stand and you look down into the Grand Canyon? Anybody been to the Grand Canyon? You know, I don't care. You could be the, the greatest photographer in the history of the world but it cannot capture the grandeur of the Grand Canyon. And you stand there and you, I mean, you're a little afraid to get, I mean, you're like 10 feet away from the edge, but you're like, man, this is a little too close for me. Especially, especially for Josh. He's a, he didn't like the heights. You know, don't give him anything more than a two foot uh, step stool. Am I right? He's got thumbs up back there. But you stand there and all of a sudden you, you begin to feel so insignificant and so smaller. Or maybe you, you know, if you made a trip over to, 
to the, to the Alps and you stood at the base of the tallest mountain in the Alps, which I don't know which one it is, but you stood there and you looked up at it. When you're standing looking at the, you know, if you're standing at the foot of Mount Everest, which is not in the Alps, I know that, but we're going to move to a different uh, mountain range here. But if you stand at the base of Mount Everest, nobody there ever stands there and say, you know, this reminds me of the time I intercepted that, that pass in junior high and ran it back for a touchdown. I was awesome. Nobody, nobody thinks they're big or strong or powerful in those moments. Jesus is saying, listen, you have little power. You can't do this. You can't open the door. You can't keep it open. But I have all the power in the world and more. We make sure we don't become Sardis by remembering that he opened the door. And by being obedient to the word of Christ. Listening to that still small voice of God in the testimony of God in scripture will save us from becoming all that we fear will become. That's why this word is so important. Listen, I I want you to know I love worship songs, but there are too many Christians today that are getting what they believe about God from worship songs. Listen, you don't even know if that worship song is biblical if you don't know this word. This is it. This is what we have. This is what He has given us. And we need to know this word. But more than that, because what did Jesus say with a wise man? It's not just hearing the words, but doing them. Putting it into action. This is what will, what will, what will keep us from becoming Sardis. Now, I, want to, I want to close this morning by just talking a little bit about the history of Sardis. And I know not everybody here is a history geek. History geek. I love history. I love reading about it. I love history documentaries and that sort of thing. And I know that makes me a geek, but that's all right. I married a beautiful woman, so I don't care anymore. So, so I, I win in the end. But Sardis was a very, very powerful city in the ancient world before even the Persian Empire. The city itself sat at uh, at 1,500 feet above the Valley of Hermas on an elongated plateau. And and it was surrounded by sheer cliffs on three sides. Uh, On every side had these sheer cliffs, uh, but but then it had this narrow isthmus that was... uh, that, that. connected to the mainland that was that was easily defended from attack. So you could only approach the city by, by land, uh, really even from the sea, because the, the cliffs were there. You could only approach the city from one direction. And when Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire, laid siege to the city of Sardis, the, the, the king of Sardis, whose name was Croesus, King Croesus believed that he was safe from harm because there was only one approach to the city, and that approach was heavily defended. He said, there's no way. We're safe. We're sound. And one night, King Croesus went to sleep thinking he was safe and secure. And he woke up the next morning as a prisoner of the king of Persia. What happened? Well, the cliffs upon which the city were, were built was built. The cliffs weren't composed of rock. They were made of compressed earth. And from time to time, Cracks would appear on the face of the cliff. And what happened was that King Cyrus of Persia, he he found one of these cracks. And his army scaled the cliffs under the cover of darkness. King Croesus of Sardis had left this area completely unguarded. 
because no one thought it was possible to climb on the, on, uh, climb up the side of those cliffs. Sardis fell because of overconfidence and carelessness while King Croesus slept. They were lost because they were not diligent in keeping watch. If they had had guards there, they could have rallied the troops, but they left it unguarded. The Bible says in Proverbs, guard your heart. Guard your heart. And there are so many of us that we reach a point in our lives where we think, uh, I don't need to worry about this area. I'm strong here. I don't, I don't have an issue with this. And we'll leave it unguarded. You know what? The people of Sardis were very aware of the city's history and the message of Jesus was quite clear to them. You're in trouble because you've been careless. We so easily get overconfident in our own ability to live this wonderful, deep, rich life that Jesus promised, but we need to remember we have little strength. We, we, we need to be vigilant and watch our lives because sin will slowly harden our hearts and eventually we will find ourselves in the position of the church of Hardis, Sardis where we will have a reputation of being alive, but we are dead and we won't even know it. It's time to wake up. Don't be lulled to sleep by the lures of this world. Let's turn to Jesus today and ask for his help. We have little power. We can't do this on our own. But his power is unlimited. We don't know how to unlock the door, but Jesus holds the key. Hold fast to what Jesus has given to you and strengthen those things that remain that stir your affections for him. You know, I thank God for our years together and I pray that on our watch that we would pursue with all of our might what it looks like to be the people of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for these men and women and, and I thank you for today and for just getting to spend time together. And I thank you for getting to laugh and getting to, to read your word and, and getting to sing to you and getting to worship you and just, you've, you've done great things already, Lord. And Lord, I thank you for the heart of so many people here who, who want to follow you, who want to love you, who want to serve you, uh, and not because you need to be served, you know, as if you're lacking something, but rather that in our service, we, we find really deep waters and we get to be near you. I pray, God, that in, in every heart and in every mind in this room, that you will just burn the question, does this stir my affections for Jesus or does it rob me? I pray that you'll just burn that into our souls so that all week long and all month long and really all year long, the rest of our lives, we would just be haunted by that question. Does this stir my affections for Jesus? Does this, does it stir my heart toward, toward Him? When I do this, when I read this, when I watch this, when I hang out with this group, does this stir my affections for Jesus? And I pray, God, that we would pursue those things that light our hearts on fire for you. And God, I pray that we would take seriously the call to not manage the flesh, but simply just to pursue you. Like the old song says, that as we turn our eyes upon you, that 
And we look full in your wonderful face that the things of earth would just grow strangely dim. And some of us really need some stuff to go dim. So help us, Lord. Help us to be your people. Help us to love you more than we do. With heads bowed and eyes closed. And listen, I believe this series on these churches have been very, are very important for us because it really deals with issues of who we are, who we're going to be. And, and, I'm, and I'm not preaching this message today thinking that, that you know, wow, this, everybody here needs to wake up here. But maybe, maybe there are areas of all of our lives in some way or another that we've gr- grown a little lackadaisical. We've maybe grown overconfident. We think that maybe we have more strength than we do and we're not guarding our heart the way we need to guard it. But whatever it is, if the Lord is speaking to you this morning, the most important thing you can do is respond to what he's saying. The worst thing you could do is to hear the voice of the Lord, to sense his nudging, to feel his tugging, and then to walk out the doors without doing anything about it. The most important thing we can do now is simply hear his voice and respond. To say, yes, Lord, I hear, I hear you, I hear you. And maybe there's areas of your life from which you need to repent. Maybe there are things that you're dealing with that uh, maybe things that you're pursuing that, that are robbing your affections. And you realize that and the Lord has pointed that out to you. But today is the day where you need to say, okay, God, today is where it starts. Now, this is not the begin- the ending. This is the beginning. This is not the finish. When we pray together today, then what God is trying to do in our lives is not over. It has just begun. And so if that's you and you say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. Because I want, I want to start this, this life. I want to pursue Jesus fully. I want to, I want to pursue those things that, 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 that really uh, fan the flames of my affection for Christ. And I want to forsake those things that pull me away or that they just don't get me where I want to go. And if that's you and say, Pastor, pray for me. Would you slip your hand up right where you are? Yeah, several hands up. Father, you saw every hand. And like I said, Lord, this is, this is not the end. And praying together and even, even responding to you is not the end. This is just the beginning of what you would want to do in us. So God, I pray that if, if there's any of us here that, that look at our lives and we say, you know what, the fire is not the same. The passion's not the same. I've, I've grown a little bit cooler in the things of Jesus. I pray, God, that we would wake up and we'd realize that I need to pay attention because something is not right. Something is going the wrong direction and I need to pay attention and go back and strengthen those things that remain and finish the work th- that you've called us to do. And, and Lord, we know that for that to happen, that you hold the key and that you have the strength that we can't make it happen. But Lord, as we turn to you in your grace and your mercy, through the power of your spirit, you will empower us to chase after you. But God, I pray you'd help us to make that choice today. That today would be a turning point for at least one person, maybe more than one person. That today would be a turning point where we simply say, okay, God, I want to pursue those things that fan the flames of my affection for you. Help us, God, because we need your help. This doesn't come easily to us. In fact, Lord God, it's much easier just to coast and let the status quo continue to be. So help us, strengthen us, change us. 
Make us the people of God you want us to be and make us the church you want us to be. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.